What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. I'm here with Saba Kanajad, the founder of Veed, which is one of the fastest growing companies that I've ever featured on the show. So what's your revenue, Saba, uh, today versus what it was you know, last year, the beginning of 2020? So today we're at 3.3 million ARR. December last year, it was about 150K ARR. There's this concept of boiling the frog. You put a frog in a pot and you turn up the water and you know, he's just going to sit there and let you boil him alive. And the whole idea is, you know, we just don't, we don't really notice when things are changing slowly, but like your revenue has changed incredibly quickly. Like that's one year from like, Hey, we're kind of ramen profitable. Like maybe we can quit our jobs to like, Oh shit, we're rich. We can do whatever we want. We can hire whoever we want. We can build whatever we want. Like we're on top of the world. What's the biggest thing that's changed in your life? having gone from such a small company to such like a, a large and growing company in, in that short of time span? Nothing has really changed my life personally day to day. I actually think I'd probably work a bit less than I did maybe a year ago. So we've got more great people helping us. It, it has in hindsight grown incredibly quickly, but day to day, it doesn't feel like that much changes. Instead, it kind of feels a bit more like every three months, I have to kind of like fire myself from my old job and kind of get more people to help and take up different responsibilities. And that's been quite hard to get used to, but um, it's been a fun journey though. An old interview with Elon Musk that I watched the other day where like he had just sold his first company and made like a hundred million dollars or something crazy. And he bought like a McLaren F1 and he was just like sitting in front of his house with his girlfriend. Like I got one of the rarest cars in the world. And like, I'm gonna drive it around and go super fast. And like, I'm just the cool, I'm the shit, you know, like I'm rich now. Like he just cared so much about having this car. And like, obviously today, if you look at that guy, like he's trying to put people on Mars and he's trying to change like everybody to driving electric cars. And he's like only focused on like weirdly ambitious, like world changing things. I think that's one thing I've seen pretty consistently with everybody I know who's like gone from, you know, starting small to like making it big. It's like your ambitions kind of ramp up. And so I wonder if that's the case with you. Because like if, if Elon didn't start off with these world changing ambitions, I'm sure almost no one does. You know, did you think a year ago that Veed was going to become this huge thing? And also, like, have your ambitions changed? Have your goals changed since back then? Completely. I, there's also an interesting, I, I had an interesting conversation with Elon, Elon Musk and going straight to, like, making spaceships or whatever is, like, super, super challenging and pretty much unattainable for anyone unless you've had a few successes before. And I think one of the examples that he used was, like, oh, just make a nice photo sharing app. <laughs> I thought it was quite <laughs> a funny, like, analogy. But no, my ambitions have completely changed. Me, me and my co-founder, early days, the idea was wouldn't it be really great if we didn't have to work for anyone else and you know without consultancy so that was like step one and then like once we got there it was like oh wouldn't it be really cool if we got to like 1 million ARR like wouldn't that just be like insane like we'd be able to like take home quite a lot of cash and just like maybe we could sell the company and would be like fine and then after we kind of got there we're just like no, no, no like that ambition's gone now like you know what's the next <laughs> thing and so now we're at this stage where we've got this you know really fast growing company and we're working with such amazing people we're just like you know how can we create a really nice environment for all of us to you know, do really good work and all have good work-life balance and, you know, be able to travel, see loved ones and stuff like that. So we, our ambitions have changed and they probably will change again in the next, you know, six six to 12 months. And then maybe start with what Veed is because we haven't even gotten into that yet. That's a really good idea. Uh, so Veed is like a simple online video editing platform. 
so the problem that we're solving is um, you know video editing software like iMovie and Premiere is all browser not browser based sorry uh, desktop based and normally really hard to use so we just make it super easy to edit videos in the browser and our tooling is like more optimized for making content for like social media or editing webinars or making podcast videos and stuff like that okay so not like youtubers aren't using it they do but not you know your high production youtube content if that makes any sense so very casual kind of users or it could be like a recording that we've we've made here and we want to subtitle it put a frame on it add a indie hackers logo to the top you know that that kind of stuff you know light editing in the browser we'd like to make it and we will be making it way more powerful as we go. But I think, you know, due to the resource constraints that we have, you know, we're not going to sit in beta for four years building this thing. We just had to get it out. And early days, it was just add text to a video or like, you know, trim the video. And over time, it's, you know, got a lot more powerful. And how did you come up with the idea for this? Because I'm, I'm friends with a mutual friend of yours. Uh, his name's James. He's part of the Weekend Club. Oh, I love James. And he's yeah. also part of the Indie Hackers podcast network. And it's, it's funny because we were talking about V the other day. And he's like, yeah, I remember sitting down with Saba. And he told me he wanted to make like a browser-based video editing company. I just laughed at him. Like, it's a cool story, bro. But like, people just edit in editing software. Like, why did you think this idea was ever going to work? I think I remember that conversation. Um, so I have, uh, I, so I went to an art school and I studied graphic, I studied graphic design. I worked in like branding and advertising for a few years in London. You know, I was just really interested in what was happening on YouTube, basically, and how creators were building really, really big audiences. You know, I got inspired, so I started making my own videos. And the bottleneck that I found was just the complexity to get into the software. As someone who's very technical, even for me, it was tough. So I thought it must be really hard for people who haven't maybe got an arts degree and worked in advertising. So that was kind of the initial idea. And I, I really liked Giphy's GIF editor. Like you could just create a GIF in the browser, really, really light and super simple. And I was like, okay, can we do that, but for video? And so, yeah, that was kind of like the initial genesis of the idea. It was you and a co-founder. What are sort of the first things you did and, and how did you end up growing it to what it is today? It probably goes back three years, actually. So my, my co-founder, Tim, had his final major project at university and he was like, oh, what should I do for it? And I was like, oh, I've got this great video idea. Why don't you do that? And then after you've finished doing that for university, we can start the company. It was like, great idea. So um, that's, that's kind of how it started, really. So then we kind of had like an MVP. We went through our, his university accelerator then, got really off track went way off course and started kind of optimizing the idea of the company for winning competitions uh, to get basically free money <laughs> the massive lesson there was like you know don't build a company to win a competition build it to make a user happy and so that kind of put us a good eight months off of course i did the exact same thing out of college i built a startup with a couple of grad students and we won like mit's 50k business plan competition we, we like tied for first so we got like 25k and it's actually like the worst thing that could happen because it just meant that I spent a year living off 25K <laughs> and wasting my time on something that nobody really cared about. But like we did win a competition and that felt good. It feels like validation in a way. And you're always kind of like looking for some sort of validation that you're doing the right thing. And if you've got a few judges that are just like, yes, you guys are really onto something. You're like, you know what? I think we could be. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. Yeah, that that put us massively off course. And once we kind of like, the good news is we won a few of the competitions, we got some money in, and then we basically burnt through it really quickly. <laughs> kind of when we had like a couple of months left, we were like, okay, let's bring this back to where we started, which was that simple online video editing platform. So the, so the initial product went up with, it was like add text, trim, crop, and I think we had some basic color correction and that was it. And that product went live. When we got it live, we put it on Product Hunt. Tim, my co-founder, got a job offer and he was like, well, you know, we've run out of money. 
why don't I get a job and you, uh, I'll give you half my salary and you keep working. I was like, okay, that's yeah, great. And, you know, testament to Tim, like that was, they were really hard times, you know, because we felt like absolute failures. And there's probably a million people out there at the time who also had online video editors that could do color correction and trimming videos. Like what you released, like how unique was it at the time? No, it wasn't super unique, basically. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Tim gets a job because you need money to survive and eat. What, what about you? How are you paying your bills? So Tim's basically giving me half his salary every month so I can keep building the product. Yeah. So, I mean, that's like massive commitment. And that's one of the times where I think in hindsight, we did like the right thing, obviously. But yeah, a really hard decision to make. And like, we are actually going to keep doing this. Like, are we going to really try and keep this alive? And then not long after that, I got a random call. I remember I was on London South Bank. I was eating a hot dog and I got a call from a recruiter saying like, hey, do you, are you looking for a contract job? And I was like, yeah, I think I am. Uh, and then, yeah, so I went contract as well. And then, um, but the good news was the product was live. People were using it, very small traffic, but we're like, okay, well, we've got money coming in. Let's save up some more runway so we can go again. The early days of your your growth, it wasn't exactly obvious that you're going to be a rocket ship. And I think a lot of people struggle with this because it's like, well, do I keep doing this thing that's like not working that well? What was going through your head? Yeah, I think about that quite a lot, especially when I'm chatting with friends who are, who are in similar situations than maybe where we were. It wasn't obvious at all. However, we did see stable growth kind of month on month, nothing crazy, but people were using it. I remember at that time we were like trying to reach out to users, like ask them what they liked, like absolutely nothing came back. And we were just like, do people really care about this? The thought at the time was like, okay, maybe we need to raise money. So I remember speaking to investors and they were just like, yeah, cool. Yeah. Like maybe check back in a few months. And I was like, okay, well, that's not going to work. Oh, maybe YC, they give free money. Right. So like we applied to YC, like got on that application. And then the other thing we were just like, okay, well, we, you know, we're based in London, we, we're getting good contract day rates. And so we're like, well, why don't we hire a couple of developers to help build the product part time while we're bringing in money and we're doing evenings and weekends. So, you know, the next eight months, we brought Mate and Vilka on who are still with us today. And we would just do evenings and weekends and we just kept pushing. And the feeling at the time was just like, we've kind of got to make this work. I don't know. I've, I've never been in that situation before where I'm just like, this is going to work. It's going to happen. We're This time it's going to happen, you know? So that was kind of the attitude. We were just very brute force about it. I mentioned it earlier, you're part of this, this group called The Weekend Club. It's kind of badass. It operates out of London. It's run by this guy, Charlie Ward. In pre-COVID times, we used to have indie hackers meetups all over the world. And Charlie was like one of the guys. He was like our meetup founder. He was always hosting events. Like I flew out to London to go to one of them. I, I just like these groups of like people who are all friends with each other and close with each other who just decide like we're going to come together and we're just going to like run shit. We're going to hold each other accountable. We're going to pump each other up. And in your case, it's like we're all going to be indie founders and we're going like, to build great businesses together. And there's a lot of these like maybe like the most famous one is probably like the PayPal mafia. Everybody knows like, okay, Peter Thiel came out of that. And David Sachs, uh, who founded Yammer, worked at PayPal. He sold that for like a billion dollars. Both the founders of Yelp came out of the PayPal mafia. Uh, all three YouTube co-founders were at PayPal. Big investors like Keith Boyd, Dave McClure, Reid Hoffman, the founder of Lee. I can keep going, you know, Elon Musk, obviously. I don't know what they were doing there. They're putting something in the water or just hiring the best people, but like they all came together and they incubated an incredible group of people who basically just run tech today. I'm part of like a small group of, it's funny, it's like a, it's called the 100K Club. It's just a group of people who are in an iMessage group who all just want to get their Twitter accounts to 100,000 followers. Not for any particular reason, they just want to. And like, I don't know how I even got into this group because I don't, I couldn't care less. Like, I'm going to be the only person in the group who doesn't get there. But it's kind of fun to like see what they're talking about and kind of feed off their energy 
and a lot of them are doing it. This is you too. I mean, you're part of the weekend club. You're part of this group of people in London who are all working together and pushing each other forward. How did that play into your sort of early struggles and successes? Yeah, I mean, the, the London indie hackers community is absolutely amazing. Indie beers, that was it. So it would be like, uh, I think it was like a Wednesday of like the first Wednesday of every month would go for beers. That's how I met Charlie and James. And also Harry is kind of part of the mafia from Weekend Club and like Front End Mentor. Like there's a lot of people hustling and, and William as well from Simple Poll. You know, going to these sort of like meetups and events was just like, I'm not the only one doing this. Like, that's really cool. I remember when I first met William from Simple Poll and he told me what his revenue was. I was like, oh my God, like that's ridiculous. <laughs> like... So it, yeah, it, it it kind of made it feel a bit more obtainable and a bit more achievable, but also um, a nice way to kind of like unwind, have a few beers and kind of just like complain about stuff, you know? <laughs> so at some point things turned around for you, like there is a before and an after. Is, is that true? Would you describe it like that? So true. Yeah. So what was that point? Give me the skinny. The point where it turned around was when we went full time on the product again. So yeah, we're working the contract jobs and, you know, user numbers are going up. We get to about 30,000 monthly users, which is pretty, you know, we were really happy with it, pretty decent. Everyone was free on the app and yeah, we got a YC interview. And so we go to YC, do the interview and we got rejected and they were like, yeah, you kind of got rejected because you're not making any revenue. And, um, <laughs> and uh, that was like a massive bummer because we were just like, this is, this is it. This is the future. This is like, we kind of, you know, bedded the house on it sort of thing. We're just like, you know, we're going to YC. And I remember we both quit our jobs again for that interview. And then, yeah, when that, when that happened, we were just like really down for about 12 hours. We woke up the next day, we were just like, I've got a great idea. Like, why don't we try and get revenue this weekend, message them on Monday, and then they'll definitely let us in. Like, of course they will. You know, it shows hustle, shows grind, grit and all that. And we did it and they're just like, yeah, no, sorry, can't. <laughs> so we were just like, again, really down. But the thing that changed was like, we got 10 users right, paid users over that weekend. And we were like, oh, hang on a minute, something's going on here. And those original investors that were really, you know, not standoffish, but they were just like, yeah, it's not the right time. We're just like, yeah, no, I think it's, you know, we'd like to, you know, you to meet the partners and they'd love to meet you. And I was like, I'm really sorry, but I just need to see this out a bit longer because the trajectory kind of looks all right. <laughs> so um, that's when it turned around. We went full-time on the product, me and Tim and Matty Vilko as well came full-time as well. And we just started grinding really, really hard. User numbers were looking good. We kind of worked out how to grow the product. We kind of worked out how to, you know, build a lot of the product and scale it. Mm -hmm. And um, that's when things kind of clicked. It takes a certain type of personality to deal with rejection that way. Like a lot of people, when they get rejected, they're like, well, that sucked. I'm not doing this anymore. Like that's a good sign that I should quit. You know, these people are maybe more successful and smarter than me. If they don't think I have a chance, I don't think I have a chance. Whereas like your response was the exact opposite. Like these people don't want us, like screw them. We're going to go make money on our own. And like you actually argue it was like the best thing that ever happened to you that they rejected you because it seemed like it lit a fire under your ass to like go do the things you probably should have already been doing. Yeah, I remember at the time thinking like I was like planning out how we were going to monetize. And in hindsight, if I actually executed that plan, maybe we would have never executed it, right? Or we could have executed it six months later, like the time was yeah. right. So yeah, massive favor. It's super interesting just thinking about the different personality traits of the people I have on the show. Because a lot of people just have like these weird, quirky things that like make them different. So like I interviewed Danielle Baskin maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, and she's got like this crazy creative personality where she's just always inventing these like weird quirky things. And as a result, she's just, she's got like 20, 30 different inventions and like 20, 30 different projects and companies she's running at the same time. But because she does that, she's just like one of the most fascinating people ever to talk to 
everyone wants to get to know her and she's got like some cool stuff that's really taken off. You've got people like Daniel Vasallo, this guy who was like making 500 grand a year at Amazon and then he quit to become an indie hacker, which seems incredibly risky. But if you actually talk to him and like you see what he's tweeting and saying, like he's like one of the most risk averse people ever. Like everything he does is 100% to add redundancy to his life to make sure that he's like disconnected from any sort of system where he's like putting all his eggs in one basket. That's kind of what motivates him to do everything. So he also has like a bunch of different projects that all could like independently succeed, even if the others fail. Maybe the most common trait is contrarianism. So people like Peter Levels or Tobias French Schneider, Sahil from Gumroad, like these are all contrarians. Well, they'll just do things just because no one else is doing it. That's kind of how they're oriented. Like they just get really upset when people are doing the same thing. So they just do something else. Like Sahil was in a clubhouse chat with my brother the other day and he's like, we're moving Gumroad to build in public and we're going to always, you know, our Zoom meetings, we're moving them over to clubhouse. So they'll be in public. And then like, my brother was kind of talking to him about like the different trade-offs. And so I was like, well, I never really even considered that point. That's a really good point. Like, I'm just doing it because no one else is doing it. <laughs> and he's just motivated to do things that like no one else is doing, which is, which can kind of work because it, it ends up uncovering these opportunities. You know, I'm, I'm guessing like yours is, from what I know about you, is like this sort of relentlessness. You're very polite and kind and, and mild-mannered on podcasts. But like, you know, I've heard some behind-the-scenes stories of you trying <laughs> every single thing under the sun, like working super late, like staring at your Stripe dashboard, like, I need to make this MRR go up, like, whatever it takes, you know, and investors sort of rejecting you, you're saying, like, screw them, we're going to do it without them. And now I know you could probably raise a ton of money if you wanted to, but, like, you still haven't, which kind of seems just like a, a fuck you to the man, like, we're doing it on our own. I mean, that's, that's, I, yeah, so maybe I do come across quite well mad on a podcast, but I, <laughs> yeah, I definitely have a bit of fire. And kind of when I'm on a mission, I need to get something done. The initial, like, oh, we've run out of money, we need to go back to contract jobs. That was an argument I had with myself. And I was like, like, Sabra, are you really going to like, are you really not going to do this thing that you wanted to do? You're 28 or whatever at the time, 27. Like, when, when else are you going to do it? Now's the time. Get on with it. That was like what I was saying to myself. And then with the YC thing and the investors, it was just a bit like, you know what? Fuck you. Like, I'm doing this. Like, I'm just going to get on with it. And I, and I don't know, I, I kind of like believed in, you know, myself and co- my co-founder Tim as well. I was like, yeah, no, we, we, we are doing this. And we, yeah, we, we're very, very high risk. I mean, we all like both times we just put all our money into it and we're just like, okay, let's just get on with it. Cause you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? Well, I mean, I say that like, you know, <laughs> you're not going to die, felt, you know, you're not going to like- die. And I was like, I can fall back on a contract job if I really need to. Hopefully the markets are right for it, you know, but uh, yeah, we were just all in, always all in. In hindsight, do you think the investors were right? to reject you like do you think yc made a mistake and veed could be be like a billion dollar company or do you think that their judgment was was accurate this is obviously my opinion and it's you know there's there's not an opinion that's gonna you know be against mine and so i'm, I'm just gonna steal the line right here yes i think they made a massive mistake um i do think it could be a really big company one of the reservations i remember from the um from the interview was we were kind of not pushed but they were like it needs to be more like youtube or instagram like that's you know those companies make a lot of money that like tall companies don't and i was like i don't know like you know adobe's got like you know 20 um 200 billion market cap they're like no no no. the big ones are like instagram like make the next instagram for me i was like no 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 and i mean in terms of like the private investors that we're speaking to at the time like you know they're in the business of like de-risking themselves so they can make better bets right and so sometimes if you're in the you know if you're running lower money they want to see as much as they can before they're willing to really commit so i don't blame them at all like i'd probably do the same it's a strategic decision really on the on the company yeah i do have a bit of a chip on my shoulder from the whole experience though and yeah i probably always have a bit 
Yeah, I mean, you should. It sounds. It does sound kind of dumb. I mean, there's a uh, there's a tweet, ironically, from Sam Altman, who he runs OpenAI nowadays, but he used to be probably when you applied to YC, he was running Y Combinator, and his tweet is: "Bad investors ask about market size, good investors ask about market growth rates, and great investors believe new markets will get created." And he's talking about like you know investors in Silicon Valley, like high growth startups. Like, how do you make the money? You know, you make the money by investing in people who create new markets and do new things, and so. The idea that you have to look exactly like an Instagram or a Snapchat or something in order to be successful uh, is pretty silly. And you sort of had some good counterexamples there. Like there are really massive tool companies like Adobe that are just crushing it, you know. And they started small, but they were relentless and they executed well. And like it turns out, like people like people like tools and people pay a lot of money for tools. I mean, it's kind of silly that like people would think that there's no way you could possibly make it unless you completely pivot to be a, a, a social media application, right? That they're asking is like about defensibility, just like, you know, what stops someone else just building this? And I think, you know, all of these are kind of like really valid questions and it's really good to challenge, to be challenged on that sort of stuff. But, you know, I think that's when it really resonated the whole, like, you know, what does it like, this is when the whole, like, does it really matter? Wouldn't it be really great if we could just work full time on it? Like that's when that sort of like first initial, like, you know, that would make me really happy feeling came. I don't want to raise a load of money. I don't need this to be really big. Like if, if we can just work on this full time. That would be awesome, you know, like that was that was the idea. Cool. So I asked on Twitter what I should ask you. I told everybody how fast you were growing, what I should ask you. And, uh, one guy had the, the funniest <laughs> the funniest question. He said, uh, ask Saba about his biggest failures and his dumbest mistakes. And the reason I think it's funny is because he, he didn't ask because he wants to know and learn from that. He just said, just I want to I want to feel better about myself. <laughs> I'm not making three million dollars a year, so I want to hear him say something bad. So I'm going to ask you about that. But first, let's talk about the good stuff. Let's talk about how it is that you were able to sort of actually grow so quickly, you know, once things turned around. I've got my theories. I obviously want to like hear yours as well. But like, you and I both know a lot of impressive people. You know, a lot of great founders in the weekend club and outside of it. Uh, you know, a lot of people with good ideas who are, they're hustlers and they try lots of stuff and they might even have like good markets and they haven't grown nearly as fast as you. What do you think you're doing that, that they're not doing? One thing is this like high, I mean, again, it's not for everyone being really high risk. Like I was, it was all guns blazing from the start. It wasn't like, oh, let's just do this on the side of uh, of my job. Because I mean, there's loads of people who have done that incredibly successfully, but that would take us two years to get to the point where we could quit our jobs. So I think that was one thing that really helped. It just kind of really, yeah, that that pushed us quite a lot. I was really unintentional when I started this. I wasn't like video editing is a huge market. Adobe has a $200 billion market cap, right? I, would, like, I had no idea about any of that stuff. I was like, I really like video editing and I really like that space. So that's kind of where I want to put my time. Honestly, Cortland, I have no idea. Like, <laughs> not, no, I do have an idea why we grew fast. But as yeah. in, like, it wasn't intentional. We didn't set ourselves up to grow this fast. One analogy that I do like to think about a lot, the way that we've grown is... I kind of feel like it's, you know, you like putting a rocket into orbit and to get into orbit, you need to get, you know, through the atmosphere. And that's the bit that's really, really tough. And you have to burn really hard to get through. Market size is the thing that's really hard to ignore here. From research that I've done, I can see that, I mean, like there's a, there's an app in um, the Play Store called InShot and it's had a hundred million downloads and that tops out on the the cap of what the Play Store will actually track. So it's, you know, it, it's really big. And when you have a lot of people looking for stuff then there's a lot of market to go around right so you can't, i don't think you can grow super super fast if you're going to cap out at a few thousand users 
I'm checking it out right now, by the way. And end shot video editor and video maker, nine million ratings, five star rating, four point eight star rating. Absolutely huge, right? When you look at this, do you think like, damn, we should be doing this? We, I mean, we will. I mean, one day we will move move to apps. But you know, the the web was like super underserved. I mean, the other thing is, if you crack open um, App Store on your on your Mac, the most downloaded software on on Mac is iMovie as well, right? So, the, the super super clear signs that there's a lot of people using and searching for this stuff, and that's you know really encouraging. But as I said, this is in hindsight. I was so unintentional when I started this. I was like, I like video. We're going to build a video editor. I mean, now with all the stuff that I've learned, I would approach idea generation incredibly differently and kind of do some of this stuff that we're talking about, like look at what apps people are downloading regularly, like how well served are they? What are the power laws with like usage within these applications? You know, stuff like that. So I got another one for you that is sort of a common trope. Uh, It's just this statement that goes around, which is that uh, ideas don't matter, execution does. You know, you you could have a great idea, but you execute like shit and your company's worth zero dollars. I got my own opinions on this. What do you think? Having, you know, obviously come up with an idea that wasn't super well considered in the beginning, but also executed like mad and found success. I was thinking about this the other day, like my mum used to let out a a holiday cottage, right? And she used to put it in a magazine called Country Cottages for You. And it would turn up and, you know, in there you could see all the places that you could stay, right? And then, you know, like 10 years later, there's this new innovative company called Airbnb who are letting out holiday houses online right and it's just like it's technically the same idea it's 10 percent different they've modernized it they've branded it really nicely they've told a really really good story but that's just execution incredibly well right it's interesting and it's almost the trick to the question is like what even counts as the idea is it only the product or the service you're making that's the idea or like if you have a special plan for how you're going to brand it and who you're going to distribute it to like does that count as part of your business idea because if, if that does count as part of your idea, then your idea is clearly <laughs> extremely important. And it's the difference between being, you know, a footnote in a magazine and being the next Airbnb. But if you're only talking about the product, then, you know, there's a lot of other parts of your business that matter a lot. The way that I would define a business idea is that it's all inclusive. It's all of these things. And it makes it slightly different than just a product idea. So I do think if you're talking about a product idea, like that doesn't matter that much because there's so many other things to worry about. But I think if you're talking about a business idea, which is like, all this research that you didn't do up front, but like in hindsight, you know, you kind of wish you, you did and in the future you will. I think that matters an incredible amount. If you do the research to figure out what market you're targeting, how fast that market is growing, how you could, can you reach these people? Like, will they switch? How much will they pay, et cetera? Like, if that's all part of your idea, then I think that is honestly the difference between starting, you know, like a mom and pop pizza shop where it doesn't matter how well you execute, like you're just never going to grow that big, you know, and starting, I don't know, something like V where you're, in a year, you go from ramen profitable to $3 million in revenue. You don't have to have all the cards in your hand at the start, though. You can kind of like pick them up on the way. Because I remember learning about acquisition channels, like marketing something that I never did before. And I remember just like crash coursing it, like massive, like just reading as much as I could, consuming as much as I could, trying as many ideas as I could. And okay, we've got that. We've, we've got that under our belt. What's the next thing that we really need to learn, right? So that's the execution, like the relentless you started, you had your idea, but now you got to execute. And that might mean changing directions, learning new things. And like, exactly, obviously, yeah. it's a huge part of like why Vita has been successful. So let's get into that. I want to actually spend a decent amount of this episode just like going through some of these channels you've succeeded on. Are you familiar with the term called the Lollapalooza effect? You ever heard of that? So it comes from Charlie Munger. I've talked about him on the show a few times before. He's Warren Buffett's business partner. One of the most inspiring people in my life since I was about 20. He just kind of attribute this guy with like teaching me how to be a systems thinker. 
and he's like 97 years old. He's still investing. He was on a podcast a couple months ago. Like that guy's just going to keep going until he dies. But uh, I think one of his biggest contributions is really nothing to do with his investing. It's just to do with like how he thinks through things. He has these, these ideas called mental models. One of them is, is called the Lollapalooza effect. So the idea is that we're all like simplifying machines. Like we want to take the complex world and make it as simple as possible because otherwise it's really hard to understand. And so we like, when we see something happen, we just kind of want to find like one explanation, like, oh, here's why Saba was successful. Like he just got lucky. And then, you know, we walk away satisfied that we understand it or, you know, here's why this thing works. But um, the Lollapalooza effect is basically like, no, generally things have multiple causes. And whenever you see something that is like an outlier, whenever you see something extreme, it almost certainly got that way because there's multiple forces that are all pushing in the same direction and adding together. And so if you want to analyze extreme results, you should try to figure out what forces are pushing together. So a good example would be, I think he talks a lot about like auctions. You know, you got a guy on stage yelling out prices, selling goods that end up going for people will buy a piece of art for like a hundred million dollars, you know? And it's like, why did you spend that much on this art? And it's like, well, you got like three or four factors pushing in the same direction. You've got social proof where you're surrounded by other people who are also buying at the same time as you. And it makes you kind of feel like accepted and like, this is the right thing to do. And you've got like this commitment principle where like, you know, if you say a number, uh, you kind of verbally committed to everybody that you want to buy this thing. And then like if someone bids higher than you, you kind of want to stick with the image you put out that like you want this thing. You've got loss aversion where like people tend to care more about not losing kind of FOMO, like missing out on things than, than winning things actually. And so like if someone outbids you, like you don't want to lose. And so you bid back and you got like this and a bunch of other factors pushing in the same direction. And like next thing you know, you've spent like $50 million on like a painting. <laughs> And Vita's the same way, like you're a total outlier. You have gone from 100K a year to 3 million a year and you know, the last 12 months or something. And it's probably not just one reason for that. There's probably more than one reason for that. And so I'm gonna guess that like, you have a lot of different marketing channels that are working really well for you and it's not just all coming from word of mouth. It's not just all coming from SEO. Like there might be one or two that stand out, but like probably a lot of them are pushing in the same direction. So what's your take? Do you think that's, that's accurate? That's extremely accurate, yeah. 100%. There's so many things. I mean, the global pandemic as well has definitely contributed towards growth. I mean, not loads, but like it's another little thing that's pushed us, right? I mean, I remember speaking with one user who was a personal trainer from Ireland, telling me that now he can't, you know, work out in the gym and work, work with his clients, he would just make videos, right? And obviously, there's loads of people doing that using our platform. Yeah, YouTube has been a really big channel for us. We make Alec has been making a YouTube video every single day since he started about nine months ago. And I mean, I think our, our videos get at like 40,000 views every 48 hours. So, you know, that's a lot of people. That's a lot wow. of eyeballs on video and it's growing incredibly well as well. So, okay. So let's talk about these like one at a time. So YouTube, Alec, I, I presume that's someone that you hired nine months ago. Yeah. Yeah. And what were your, what was your thought? Like, how did you, how did you decide we should hire someone to do YouTube for us? Like, what was your thinking about how that was going to work and what this person would do? Search, search in general was just a really good channel for us. And YouTube is the second biggest search engine in the world. And the great thing about YouTube as well being the second biggest search engine is it's, it's not just like, oh, you click a link and you go to the product. It's like you, the video is like a vehicle for you to explain how to use the product as well as market the product. So it's like education as well as marketing, which is incredibly powerful. We were so, so lucky to find Alec. The story goes, he was looking for a job in social media and he Googled social media job London. 
and we were the first link on Google Jobs. <laughs> he clicks it, he clicks apply, and um, he's already got a YouTube channel talking about social media, which was incredibly impressive. And I remember interviewing him, and like, this is early days, like, non-professional interview. I was like, so if you want a job, just like, you know, let me know. Like, <laughs> it was like super casual. And he was like, yeah, I'm actually looking for a job. I was like, all right, should, should we work together? And he was like, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so that was, that was pretty much it. And then he came in one day and made a video and then made another one. And that's pretty much how it went. And what was your strategy? Like, hey, you do whatever you want. We trust you. Or were you like, here's the playbook we think is going to work on YouTube. And, and also ultimately, like what has ended up working? Because I'm checking out YouTube right now. You're at 13,000 subscribers. You've got a ridiculous number of videos. What's going on here? Similar to how investors work, right? You you put 10 bets in on 10 companies and one of them is going to work really well. So it's the same with YouTube videos, we think. We don't know. And what we try and do is answer the internet's questions, basically. So when I was um, working in video editing, if I wanted to do something, like uh, if I wanted to make an audio wave on in After Effects, I'd put After Effects audio wave generation. And I'd watch the video, right? And maybe there'd be a plugin that I'd have to get or something like that. So it was just from past experience. And so I was like, Alex, so, you know, take take some of the things that you can do with Veed and, you know, write them out as questions and show people how to do them. He was like, all right, sweet. Yeah, let's get on with it. And then, you know, the varying degrees of success on each of the videos, like we're kind of working out what works for the algorithms. We're trying to work out what works for the users. We worked out that if we, we say like, oh, how to subtitle a video in iMovie, right? And then we show them how to do it in iMovie. But at the start of the video, Alex, like, there's the quick way or the fast way. Let me show you the iMovie slow way first and then we'll show you the fast way with Veed. So yeah, so we've worked out how to like lean on other, you know, other tools and like we had a lot of people like asking about Zoom videos. I think the Zoom market, you know, user doesn't really know that much about video editing. So we'd get a lot of questions like, can can I can I edit a Zoom video with you guys? Or is it just social media videos? We're like, no, 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 all videos. So Alec made a, uh, a video like how to subtitle or how to edit a Zoom video. And then that, you know, in the first six months got 100,000 views because it's really topical, right? Google Analytics around Christmas, I saw a massive spike in how to make Christmas videos, right, on our, on our website. So also taking current topics, things that people are talking about and like, you know, addressing that is, is really helpful to catch, you know, catch waves and, and ride them. Okay, so that's YouTube, one part of your growth. Let's talk about hiring. How many people work at, at V today? I'm not too sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm, the reason I'm not too sure is because there's a few friends in the Slack as well. So I think we've got about this. Yeah. So and like we don't if people leave, they stay in the Slack as well. So we can still chat to them because we like them. But I think there's about 35 of us. Uh, about 25 people are on like product marketing, development, design sort of stuff. I'm imagining you did not have 35 people a year ago. Uh, so obviously no, like, hiring no, no. a lot. How does that contribute to your growth? And what's your strategy for hiring? I mean, like... I hire like founders, basically. That's That was the original strategy. So Diana, for example, who does our social, she was a freelancer working in social media and had her own agency. So I knew hiring her would be great because she could do everything. And so, you know, the first few hires like Alec, Diana, and they were very able to handle everything, which meant there was no management needed. They, they could just get on with it. And I trust that they do a really, really good job. And, and both of them have done exceptionally well. This kind of comes back to like us not expecting to get to where we were, right? We weren't like, oh, we need organizational structure and all of this stuff, you know, but the problem that we, we have now hit a problem, you know, when it comes to like engineering, especially it was just like, let's add one more engineer to help us. 
And then like we get to the point where we've got 10 engineers, we're just like, this doesn't work anymore. Like we need to kind of structure that and maybe get a product manager in. So I'm trying to learn actually Cortland how to do this myself. <laughs> and I don't know any of the answers. So it's one of those like double-edged swords where like, obviously if you have more people in the door, like you can do more things. Like so there's a reason why the biggest companies in the world have like a hundred thousand employees, but at the same time, it's kind of chaos, right? If you don't hire carefully, you've hired the wrong people, uh, it can be a huge distraction. It's not particularly fun for someone like you who can like code and design and do some hands-on stuff. What are some of like the hidden costs of growing so quickly? You know, are there, are there risks to hiring that you've and, and downsides that you've sort of encountered? Yeah, I mean, massively. I don't do anything that I originally did. Uh, there's no coding for me. There's no design for me. Yes, I have like you know conversations. And I'm very much part of that world in the company, which is great, but. Massive cost. It's, I mean, like right now we're probably going through, I'd like to think like the hardest part of my hiring journey in the company, which kind of is going to initiate a lot of the key people in the organization. That's what I'm doing right now. And hopefully after that, they will be responsible for hiring the next people. But it just takes a long time, basically, to hire good people. It's expensive and it's really tiring. And it's not something that I particularly enjoy. Have you made any mistakes? And, and what do you think about the advice to, you know, hire slow, fire fast? Yeah, I mean, we in the in the early days, we I mean, we found Vilko, who was like our second engineer on um, a discord chat, and he joined like two days later, like, and it was like, you know, super, super lucky. So we made a lot of like, we were basically we got super lucky in the early days to find Matty and Vilko. And yet yeah, now we take a lot longer to hire and we do fire relatively fast as well if it doesn't work out. But we also don't like firing people. So it means we're super diligent on that initial process. Hiring people is literally the hot, like the worst thing in the world. And all it is, is a, it's basically just demonstrating that you're doing your job wrong. So like if, I, if, I'm, if I'm firing someone a week after they started, it means that I just haven't done the due diligence. I have, I've like persuaded myself that they're a great fit when they're actually, they're probably not. Or, you know what I mean? So like, yeah. yeah, I hold myself accountable for that. What do you think is the best thing? Like, let's say someone hasn't gone through this year of, of, hiring and learning these lessons hard like what would you tell a new founder who really doesn't want to have to fire anyone and doesn't want to have to put themselves in the position like how do they prevent that and actually hire well okay so two things one is i've, I've learned a lot about this stuff recently so um one is like do the due, due diligence right so like if it's an engineer there's like multiple interviews with coding tests and stuff like that if it's a product manager there might be a take home if there's a design we do like an interactive thing with Miro the other thing that I've learned is um, job boards don't work that well at all you know I think job boards are really good for jobs that lots of people apply for but when you're looking for very specific talent especially at the early stages of a, um, a company growing then it's probably better to find them yourself working at another company and be like you work at that company you do this kind of stuff like maybe there's something we could do here you know and the biggest time save that I've I was a bit against recruiters at the start I was like no I want to find them myself I want to save the money but now it's just like oh my god I speak to a recruiter they put 10 CVs in front of me and they're all really good and they're all ready to go right so like that has literally saved weeks and that's for us now it's just so worth worth paying for that right so let's talk about side project marketing you familiar with this this term I think it was created by Ali Meese. It's funny because it's like, I don't, the term never really caught on. I remember he wrote a blog post about it on Indie Hackers like two or three years ago, where you get people to your, your app by basically building little side projects that build them in. And like the term never took off, but like looking at some of the things that you've done to grow Veed, it seems like one of your primary acquisition channels. You build all sorts of cool apps that like aren't Veed, they're not your video editor, but it looks like they're bringing a lot of people into 
your video editor. So, so walk us through some of the things you've done there and, and why they work. Okay, so we tried everything, literally everything, side projects, tooling, um, blog, blogging, YouTube, like we were throwing spaghetti at the wall massively. Side project marketing in the early days was like, there's a few things that we do. Like one is like, is this just a static site that can easily be thrown up and is kind of interesting. We can get it on Product Hunt and there's a bit more buzz, a few more backlinks. And then the way that we kind of think about it now, which is a bit more smart, is just like, what's a com complementary product that we can make for free that plugs into our application that is like super nice. So a good example is a screen recorder tool that we have that gets between like three to 5,000 people using it every day. And like, you know, what what portion of those people recording that, you know, their screen are gonna wanna now edit that video, you know, hopefully 10, 20%. So that's, you know, a good portion of people into the application. That's super smart. You're thinking like one level up the stack. All right, we have a video editor. What do people do right before they need to edit a video? Oh, one of them is they make screen recordings. So let's make a screen recorder and then put like an edit button in there. And when they click that edit button, it'll take them to Veed after they record their video. Not enough people think this way, but I think it's like a, a super creative and interesting and kind of fun way to get people to your app. Because then you get to like, you know, if you're the sort of developer type who always wants to build stuff, you get to justify building like a whole new, really simple app and you know using that to to grow rather than doing like pure marketing you know we're just going to write blog posts etc yeah it is way more fun the cool thing is there can be like certain amount of like virality or like network effects baked into that so you know something we're asking ourselves now is like okay people record their screen um and that you know we've got 2000 to 5000 people doing that a day what if we had like a share button and they could share it with someone else and that person could then come, you know, and then, okay, so 10% of those people share it and 10% of those users become Veed users as well. So, you know, we're trying to think a lot about that. The other side project marketing that's been quite interesting is, oh, that's it, video compressor. So we emailed another video compressor site and said, why do people use this? And they said, oh, they're just getting compressing their videos to, to using video editing software. And we're like, ah, okay. Wow. So we were just like, okay, video compressor, let's get that up. And then, yeah, once your video is compressed, just click edit and you're in the editor, you know? So, um, yeah, we think a lot about that. So let's go, let's go rapid fire through some of these because I got like a long list of things. We talked about YouTube, we've talked about hiring, we've talked about side project marketing. What about Quora? I've heard that you've done, you did some work on Quora in the early days. It's a big Q&A site. Is that true? And how did that help you grow? Yeah, exactly. So Quora, what, I mean, again, I say was because I'm not sure if these things are still true. Again, like, you know, we would like search for things that we wanted to come up for, right? So like, how do I add text to video, right? And then I'd put like Quora and then I'd get the first link on Quora and then I'd just write a really good response to it. And when we were doing this like three years ago, Quora was pretty chill. So you could just basically spam Quora and just like write 20, 30, 40 answers a day. And now it's just a numbers game, right? It's just like, okay, well, those 10 answers generate 20 clicks. Let's just do this every day. And all of a sudden, you know, 10 days later, you've got 200 clicks a day coming from Quora. And in the early days, it is like, you just want to stack one click on top of another click on top of another click every day. And you just want to make that marginal improvement of getting more people to your site. So that, that was pretty much what we were doing. And when I get banned from Quora or told to chill out for 48 hours, I'll go to Reddit, <laughs> right? And just start yeah. doing it there instead. So yeah, we were just relentless, absolutely relentless. Did you use Reddit? Yeah, of course we use Reddit. I'm banned from like most of the subreddits on there. Anyway. <laughs> because like, you know, too much self-promotion. <laughs> yeah. Was it worth it? Do you think it like... Oh yeah, 100% worth it. Yeah. 
And we'd also try and find different ways to share content as well. It's not that exciting posting a link, which is just like how to add text to a video. Like very few people are going to click on it. So like what interesting content can we make that will pe that people will click on that, you know, gets that initial flow of traffic. I feel a little bit like Google's a bit like a, like a stream, right? And, you know, you want to start just getting things flowing down the stream. And then after a while, like a bit more of the bank breaks off and, and then the river starts coming through really, really fast, you know? So just whatever you can to just get something going, people, eyeballs on the page, you know? Yeah. SEO this is kind of the elephant in the room because I, I would guess this is where the majority of your traffic comes from. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true, but also even some of the things you're doing, like your side projects, like probably benefit a lot from SEO. Somebody's like, oh, how do I record, you know, a video with my webcam and they get your webcam recorder? Like that is side project marketing. Yeah, but it's also through search engine optimization. So uh, how much of a role does SEO play in Veed's growth and how have you kind of thought about it over time? Mm. You know, the way that a company like um, like BuzzFeed will grow is going to be completely different to how we grow. And maybe a social media app is going to grow through referrals and invites like clubhouses right now, but it's not going to grow through SEO. So I think understanding what the primary acquisition channels that work in the industry that you're in is like super, super important. So you can go to a website like SimilarWeb and put in, a, you know, a tool like Canva and you can see that probably about 60% of their traffic is coming from SEO. So that's a, a really good indicator to us that that's where we should be putting our, putting our time and energy. So that's the way, and again, like, you know, I might sound like I've got my shit together, but at the start, I didn't know any of this, right? So, you know, we were plodding through trying to work it out, but yeah, SEO super yeah super powerful for us and um because it you know when it starts when something starts working you pour more resource into it and see if you can continue to scale it right seo i think is one of the hardest things for people, for people to get into because number one it's extremely competitive you might try getting into it and just like give up because nothing's working at first and then number two even if you're doing it right like you're you know you're building all these pages you're getting you know you're targeting the right keywords it might take like three, six, 12 months to like see results. So the feedback loop is super slow. And like, and to some degree, you kind of have to have faith that it's working and keep going. Whereas, you know, like if you put a link on Hacker News, you get the traffic immediately, it kind of feels good. How did you sort of decide to stick with SEO for so long? How long did it take it to start working for you? And like, what were some of the first things you tried? The way that I like to think about like idea generation uh, in general is not make something people want it's like make something people search for right and i think that's massively key right and you know you, you talk about competition seo being really tough and like yes if you're like trying to market a marketing product or an seo course then that might be quite tough to go after but you can also go for long tail keywords and what i mean by that is like seo courses for butchers i mean like that's completely random but yeah. And, and, you know, just even, even from like recent exploration that I've done, it's like, you know, 33,000 people a month are searching for video hosting. And that's a lot of people looking for video hosting. And we know that video hosting is a proven market and people are willing to pay for it. Yet the domain difficulty for ranking for that is actually relatively low. It's like 33. So that's an obtainable search term to go after, I, I would say, right, even for an indie hacker. That's the first part, which is make something people search for. The second part, when it comes to, you know, how long it takes, you said, you know, ranking on, ranking can take three, six, 12 months. The good news is that's probably how long it takes you to build your product to a point where people want to use it, right? So if I was to start again, you know, the SEO stuff goes up at the same time that the product goes up and give, give it time. I think it took us a good eight months for SEO to start kicking in and we didn't see the full fruits of it for probably a year, maybe longer. 
And a good friend of mine uh, makes a really cool tool called Tiny Host. I remember having a chat with him about eight, nine months ago. And I was like, dude, just make like five landing pages and like here, grab my Ahrefs account and just try and find some keywords. Eight months later, he's now like adding four paid users to his platform every single day. And he's just, it's taken eight months, but he's just like, I get it now. I get it. And I'm like, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. (laughs) (laughs) So what am I not asking you about? We've been through a few channels. I got like 10 more here. We don't have time to go through all of them. What would somebody, you know, who's on the outside looking in, doesn't really understand what you've been through, you know, not even know to ask about what's been, you know, crucial for your success and, and finding more people for Veed? I've dodged the question about the most, the, the big fuck up that I've had. I might just leave that one there. <laughs> the, the things that you've missed is luck, being at the right place at the right time. This is not hard work. This, I mean, there's a massive portion of hard work in here, but it's not all hard work at all. And as you said, like with, with with the theory, it's just, it's not one thing, right? It's not like, oh, we made this like referral code and then every started, everyone just started sharing it and they'd get like free Dropbox credits and stuff like that. It wasn't that, it's just like multiple things all pushing us in the right direction. So yeah, I completely resonate with that. So I'm not going to let you get out of this, this Twitter guys question. For all the people out there who are feeling bad that you're making so much money so quickly, even though it's not easy, what is like the most embarrassing thing, the dumbest mistake, the dumbest mistakes that you've made in the process of, of running the... God, I don't know if I'm going to say this, but I might say it. Yeah, okay, I'm going to say it. So, uh, <laughs> so if you, so we, oh no, I can't say it. No, I can't say it. No, I can't say it. <laughs> Give me the second dumbest thing. The reason why, yeah, the reason why I won't say it is because there might be legal implications. So I'm going to do that <laughs> okay, to yeah, I don't want to get you arrested or fined. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is like we ran out of money. That's like a pretty big deal. And like I might have brushed over it, but that was like really pretty hard on us and pretty depressing as well like we were so close to giving up at that point so that was super hard but there's the the one big one okay so maybe maybe if you want to know the one big one someone could like message me like what was that really big one i need to feel better about myself like you know you know what'd be funny is if uh you said it i'll bleep it out in the podcast episode so no one will hear it (laughs) it'll just make for some funny audio i think should i say it yeah yeah i'll bleep it out okay so we had one point yeah (laughs) yeah. <laughs> oh no like, <laughs> yeah that shit sucks yeah really really i mean that was like super early it was like before we even charged products as well like it was like before there was even sign up walls or anything like yeah were, were you mortified i literally thought the world was gonna be over like <laughs> I, I was like i was like they're gonna come the police are just gonna come take me away so, <laughs> i remember calling up a lawyer of, i'm gonna stop talking <laughs> all right all right if someone wants to know to know about this yeah. they can message you sava You've been a great guest. Thanks a ton for coming on the podcast. I got to ask you the traditional ending indie hacker question here. And on a positive note, you've been through a lot. Obviously, you've had this rocket ship growth. You've been at rock bottom. You've run out of money. You've been rejected by investors. What's your your one takeaway that you think other founders out there, whether they're just getting started or whether they're very experienced, should take away from from what you've learned? Invest in uh, SEO, probably if you're a tools company. And uh, don't give up. Keep pushing and make something people search for. All right. Make something people search for. Can you tell people, yeah, where can people go to find out more about like what's going on at Veed behind the scenes? You could, I'm on Twitter, S-A-B-8-A. Our site is Veed.io. Yeah, you can email me at S at Veed.io as well. And if you're, if you want to join uh, the team at Veed, feel free to reach out and we'd love to have a chat with you. All right. Thanks again, Saba. Cheers, Gautland.